Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the second hour of a two-hour spectacular. Okay, I might be overselling it just a little bit, but it's a Friday, so if I'm a little bit uh, over-enthusiastic, you'd understand, right? I hope you would understand. Nonetheless, I'm glad you're joining me. A shout-out to our friends joining us on KTOC 1640 AM in Salt Lake City. I will tell you this, wherever you are listening, whether you're listening on the Loving Liberty app, you're listening to our live stream on the LovingLiberty.net website, or even if you just happen to stumble across this podcast and you're like, what the heck? Thanks. Thanks for being a part of the show. Those catching the live stream or catching the live radio broadcast, 801-331-8113 is the number. Now, if I sound like I have a little spring to my step, you've got to understand, this never feels like work. There is just not a day that uh, I sit down, oh boy, time to make the donuts and here we go. We've got to find some more stuff to talk about. There's so much to talk about, but why I do what I do always stems from the idea that there are some things that matter deeply enough that someone needs to be speaking and upholding them. Now, I'm certainly not alone. I'm, I'm one of many voices that take this very seriously. In fact, I, I, I look at this less as a job and more as almost a calling. But one of the things that I believe matters most, and it's something that I think we're, we're probably more in danger of losing, or uh, maybe another way to put it, more in danger of relinquishing, is our freedom of speech, our ability to speak and think freely, to follow our conscience I don't know if you feel the pressure, but I, I see that pressure coming from many different angles. Uh, was it just earlier this week? Um, I can't remember his name now. There, this is because I don't pay that close of attention to, to the whole political shebang. But uh, one, of, one of Trump's administration, in, uh, administration officials, I want to say his last name's Miller, um, in some of his emails back and forth between other individuals, was uh, promoting a book or was talking about his love of a book called The Camp of the Saints. I've never read the book, and the descriptions that I see, I mean, it's, it sounds like a dystopian novel set sometime in the future, and it's, it's about a ship full of immigrants trying to find some place they can call home. And apparently these immigrants, uh, I think they hail from India, they're not portrayed in very complimentary terms. Basically dirty, oversexed, you know, just vagrants trying to find some place, any place they can call home. And this is portrayed as well. See, this is this is white nationalism writ large. And I don't I don't know anything about the book other than it's got some people really, really angry. But I have to admit, I'm a little bit troubled when people start telling me you should never read this. Don't ever read it. Because if there's one thing I take seriously, it's the idea that I will make that decision for myself. Now, many years ago. There was a book, maybe you've heard of it, called The Turner Diaries. Supposedly, Timothy McVeigh read about uh, The Turner Diaries, and that may have been in part what prompted him to uh, participate in the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City back in 1995. I've never read the book. 
But I had seen a couple of people mention it. Yeah, that's one of those, uh, you know, government against everybody, you know, kind of novels. So I asked a trusted friend about it. Hey, have you ever heard of this before? And he says, you know, he says, if you want uh, intellectual or political pornography, he goes, yeah, that's that's the kind of book that will resonate with some. He said it was it was charged with racially loaded stuff. And, you know, based on his recommendation, because I trusted him and because he wasn't telling me you should never read that. He just said my impression was when I read it, it had nothing to offer me. And so I took his word for it. Now, hopefully you can see the difference. He was suggesting he didn't see anything of redeeming value. That's a very different thing from you should never read this. And if you ever do or you ever talk about it or you ever mention it in a favorable light, well, you know, then then you are an evil person. See, the danger here is that everything is being redefined. Like a lot of people, my, my kids have prevailed on my wife and I to to get Disney plus. And I'm I'm not surprised we talked about it the other day but there's you know there's the warning that pops up when you pull up some of the disney classics now this may contain outdated or offensive stereotypes or caricatures and it's so what we understand times aren't the same things have shifted but i I just don't get the whole idea that well somebody needs to warn you because you know apparently we're considered too mentally fragile to confront information or to confront ideas that that may or may not even be, you know, acceptable to us. Here's the key. You wonder, why am I drawing such a hard line on censorship? The reason I draw a hard line on censorship is because it is very plain to me that either you choose what you will read, what you will listen to, what you will view, or somebody else does. And I don't want you to take that as an endorsement. Therefore, whatever Larry Flint wants to publish, he's the publisher of Hustler magazine, you know, is is a okay. I don't think it is. But at the same time, I am not about to presume that, you know what, I know what's best for you. And I think we should make that, you know, legally off limits to you. Rather, I would try to persuade you. Let's uh, let's focus on something that's a little more ennobling something that's a little more reflective of a society that's in its ascendancy rather than one that's in deep decline and it's not just you know we're not just talking about the prurient uh, kind of stuff we're talking about the very language that we use to describe ourselves i mean if you've had to fill out any kind of an application or fill out any kind of a questionnaire does anybody else shake their heads when it's okay so uh, what gender are you and I know there's there's folks out there going, what the heck is cis, cis male something blah binary? What the? The waters are being muddied, and it's because there is an element of what I would term the thought police out there trying to shape how we think by trying to control the words that we use. I still think George Orwell's 1984 may have been either the best warning or perhaps the best how-to manual ever written on how to implement thought control. And just to put my cards on the table, it's not, it's not so much even a matter of, well, you know, politically, I want to be able to espouse, you know, the message of freedom. I do want to be able to espouse the message of freedom, but it goes beyond that. And for me, here's the line in the sand, and I see us rapidly approaching this line. I think freedom of religion is going to be the next target. 
I think it already is being targeted in many ways. I mean, come on. How far have we come since Engel versus Vital? Wasn't that back in uh, 1962, 1963? That was uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare. This is the, the decision that took prayer out of the schools decisively. And since then, it's been kind of a long, drawn-out, you know, 55-year battle or more to keep God out of the public square. Now, you understand, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to make the case for we should be a theocracy. But for crying out loud, people suing because, well, they said a prayer at graduation, or they've had a prayer at these football games, or somebody, you know, had a religious symbol, a, a holiday creche, or something like that on public property. That constitutes an establishment of religion. And so the power of the state is used to, to quash those things, force them out. You can't talk religion in school. But at least in some school districts, they can teach third graders about sodomy. Teach them how to put a condom on a banana. Teach them about alternative lifestyles and, and different sexual perversions that are supposed to be accepted as absolutely normal and natural. Kids! Now, granted, there are people who get a little bit bent out of shape about that. Hey, that's not right. But they're just as likely to be hooted out of the room. And heaven forbid somebody suggests, well, maybe uh, the students should start their day with a moment of silence. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to establish some kind of a religious theocracy on these students? You get the picture. The hostility is barely, barely contained. And I sincerely believe that uh, it's only going to get worse. Look, our, our biggest entertainment uh, industries, Hollywood, the recording industry, you know, as Bart Simpson jokingly said many years ago, everybody knows the best bands are affiliated with Satan. I mean, it started as a joke, but I'm not so sure that maybe there isn't some truth there. Hollywood clearly has hostility towards traditional Judeo-Christian ethics. And it's only a matter of time, whether it's under the guise of hate crimes laws or or other you know, efforts of the thought police before you and I are not allowed to assert our conscience. And I'm talking between right and wrong, not between some political distinction, but just simple right and wrong. We will not be allowed to object to immoral things, either being taught to our kids or being espoused by government officials or that we're being told you have to kneel and say that this is the way things are. I know, it seems like, well, when the time comes, I will bravely stand. You ever heard of Jack Baker? I'm sorry, that's not his name. Jack, oh, crud, now I can't remember his last name. The Baker in Colorado. Jack Phillips, thank you. Yeah, he paid a pretty high price for standing what he believed in. We'll be back after this. Good, you're still here. <laughs> if I didn't scare you away with the first segment, uh, let's let's continue this conversation. By the way, you can join the conversation if you're listening live, 801-331-8113. So I want to I want to share with you an article from John Miltimore about the origins of the thought police and why the thought police scare us. And that's pretty much what I just outlined for you in the first segment is I'm deeply concerned we're coming up on a time where speaking the truth 
is something we're going to look back on with uh, maybe a little pang of nostalgia. Remember when you could actually say right is right and wrong is wrong and somebody wouldn't report you or otherwise have some kind of legal leverage or otherwise social or cultural leverage to punish you for not agreeing with what the thought police say you should be thinking? There was a time when that seemed really far-fetched. But under uh, political correctness, under social justice, I'm not so sure. We have fallen a long, long way in a fairly short time, and that fall seems to be accelerating. John Miltimore says there are a lot of unpleasant things in George Orwell's dystopian novel 1984. Spying screens, torture and propaganda, victory gin and victory coffee also always sounded particularly dreadful. And there's Winston Smith's varicose ulcer, apparently a symbol of his humanity or something, which always seems to be throbbing. Gross. Now, none of this sounds very enjoyable, says John Miltimore, but it's not the worst thing in 1984. He says, to me, the most terrifying part was that you couldn't keep Big Brother out of your head. Unlike other 20th century totalitarians, the authoritarians in 1984 aren't that interested in controlling behavior or speech. They do, of course, but it's only as a means to an end. Their real goal is to control the gray matter between the ears. When you finally surrender to us, it must be of your own free will. O'Brien, the bad guy, tells protagonist Winston Smith near the end of the book. We do not destroy the heretic because he resists us. So long as he resists us, we never destroy him. We convert him. We capture his inner mind. We reshape him. John Miltimore says Big Brother's tool for doing this is the Thought Police, a.k.a. the ThinkPole, who are designed to root out and punish unapproved thoughts. We see how this works when Winston's neighbor, Parsons, an obnoxious party sycophant, is reported to the Thought Police by his own child, who heard him commit a thought crime while talking in his sleep. It was my little daughter, Parsons tells Winston when asked who it was who denounced him. She listened at the keyhole, heard what I was saying, and nipped off to the patrols the very next day. Pretty smart for a nipper of seven, eh? So who are these thought police? Well, John Miltimore says we don't know a lot about the thought police, and some of what we think we know may not actually be true since some of what Winston learns comes from the inner party, and they lie. But what we know is this. The thought police are the secret police of Oceania, the fictional land of 1984 that probably consists of the UK, the Americas, and parts of Africa, who use surveillance and informants to monitor the thoughts of citizens. The Thought Police also use psychological warfare and false flag operations to entrap freethinkers or nonconformists. Those who stray from party orthodoxy are punished, but not killed. The Thought Police don't want to kill nonconformists so much as break them. This happens in Room 101 of the Ministry of Love, where prisoners are re-educated through degradation and torture. Funny sidebar... John Miltimore points out the name Room 101 apparently was inspired by the conference room at the BBC in which Orwell was forced to endure tediously long meetings. Okay, I can appreciate that. I'm kind of a non-meeting guy myself. But let's get back to the origins of the Thought Police. John Miltimore says Orwell didn't create the Thought Police out of thin air. They were inspired, at least to some degree, by his experiences in the Spanish Civil War between 1936 and 1939. 
a complicated and confusing affair. What you really need to know is that there were no good guys. And it ended with left-leaning anarchists and Republicans in Spain crushed by their communist overlords, which helped the fascists win. Orwell, an idealistic 19, or an idealistic 33-year-old socialist when the conflict started, supported the anarchists and loyalists fighting for the left-leaning Second Spanish Republic, which received most of its support from the Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin. Now, that might sound bad, but keep in mind that the Nazis were on the other side. Orwell described the atmosphere in Barcelona in December 1936 when everything seemed to be going well for his sign, for his side rather, quote, the anarchists were still in virtual control of Catalonia and the revolution was still in full swing. It was the first time that I had ever been in a town where the working class was in the saddle. He wrote in homage to, to Catalonia, every wall was scrawled with the hammer and sickle. Every shop and every cafe had an inscription saying that it had been collectivized, end quote. But as John Miltimore points out, that all changed pretty fast. Stalin, a rather paranoid fellow, was bent on making Republican Spain loyal to him. Factions and leaders perceived as loyal to his exiled communist rival, Leon Trotsky, were liquidated. Loyal communists found themselves denounced as fascists. Nonconformist and uncontrollables were disappeared. Orwell never forgot the purges or the steady stream of lies and propaganda churned out from the communist papers during the conflict. Now, to be fair, their nationalist opponents also used propaganda and lies. Stalin's NKVD was not exactly like the thought police. The NKVD showed less patience with, the, with its victims, but they certainly helped inspire Orwell's secret police. He says the thought police were not all propaganda and torture, though. They also stem from Orwell's ideas on truth. During his time in Spain, he saw how power could corrupt truth. And he shared these reflections in his work, George Orwell, My Country, Right or Left, 1940-1943. Quote, I saw newspaper reports which did not bear any relation to the facts, not even the relationship which is implied in an ordinary lie. I saw great battles reported where there had been no fighting and complete silence where hundreds of men had been killed. I saw troops who had fought bravely denounced as cowards and traitors, and others who had never seen a shot fired hailed as the heroes of imaginary victories. And I saw newspapers in London retailing these lies and eager intellectuals building emotional superstructures over events that had never happened. End quote. So in short, Orwell's brush with totalitarianism left him worried that the very concept of objective truth is fading out of the world. And this scared him a lot. He actually wrote this kind of thing is frightening to me. Finally, John Miltimore points out the thought police were also inspired by the human struggle for self-honesty and the pressure to conform. The individual has always had to struggle to keep from being overwhelmed by the tribe. Rudyard Kipling observed that. The struggle to remain true to oneself was also felt by Orwell, who wrote about the smelly little orthodoxies that contend for the human soul. Now, Orwell prided himself with a power of facing unpleasant facts, something of a rarity in humans, even though it often hurt him in British society. In a sense, 1984 is largely a book about the human capacity to maintain a grip on the truth in the face of propaganda and power. John Miltimore says it might be tempting to dismiss Orwell's book as a figment of dystopian literature. And unfortunately, that's not as easy as it sounds. 
modern history shows he was onto something. When the Berlin Wall came down in November 1989, it was revealed that the Stasi, East Germany's secret police, had a full-time staff of 91,000. Now, that sounds like a lot, and it is, but what's frightening is the organization had almost double that in informants, including children. And it wasn't just children reporting on parents. Sometimes it was the other way around. Nor did the use of state spies to prosecute thought crimes end with the fall of the Soviet Union. Believe it or not, it's still happening today. The New York Times recently ran a report featuring one Peng Wei, a 21-year-old Chinese chemistry major. He is one of thousands of student information officers China uses to root out professors who show signs of disloyalty to President Xi Jinping or the Communist Party. Could something similar be shaping up in our society as well? Stick around. We'll come back to John Miltimore's article and take your calls. 801-331-8113, right after these messages. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Just out of curiosity, do, do you find yourself concerned that we're approaching a time where speaking the truth is going to be, uh, how can I put this, verboten? <laughs> Severely frowned upon, discouraged, maybe even punished? I mean, look, th- there's the, the whole passive-aggressive, we will remove any posts that name the alleged whistleblower in uh, the Ukraine phone call for President Trump. That's one thing. I wonder sometimes if it, if it takes such a mundane, you know, appearance that a lot of this slips by us. And, and you know, for those who, who may have mistaken, you know, I see a lot of uh, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself memes out there. I laugh at him. Somebody posted one earlier today that I, I just had to chuckle at because it was a, it was a listing, a real estate listing for a home and a virtual tour of a home listed for sale in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And when my friend posted it, it's like, hey, take the tour. I wondered. As I start clicking on the photos, okay, they've got a nice drawing room. There's a beautiful dining room. The living room looks good. And sure enough, you get to the kitchen and someone with black tape has written out on the wall, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. And I'm like, wow, people are getting creative with this. But behind the humor... There is something much more significant here. And and look, I don't know very many people who really are concerned that uh, that Jeffrey Epstein, you know, there was, there was a terrible miscarriage of justice here in that uh, he was falsely labeled a pedophile or or whatever. It's I think uh, the fact he was convicted of trafficking young girls for for sexual exploitation back in what, 2008, 2009. He already had the conviction on his record. He received a sweetheart of a plea deal that kept him out of jail six days a week. And he was right back to business as usual. Why? Because he was hobnobbing with the the very wealthy, the very politically connected, powerful people. So lest anybody think that, yeah, this is all about having a laugh at poor Jeffrey Epstein's expense. 
the larger truth behind all of those Epstein didn't kill himself memes is this. It appears that the powerful and rich people among us, or some of them, I should say, are engaging in some very despicable and cruel exploitation of children. And the darker truth behind that is that there are other people in powerful places, both politically and within the media, who are determined to protect them to the bitter end. Even to the point that a guy who is supposedly in a secure facility, supposedly under suicide watch, mysteriously ends up dead. And the cameras just mysteriously malfunction, and the guards mysteriously fell asleep, and well... You probably get the idea that coincidences just really start to stack up. There's a truth out there that I believe is being actively hidden from us. And, and by the way, it's the, the tight-lipped press. We know now, thanks to Project Veritas, ABC sat on this story for the last three years. We know that there have been others who had connections or had insights on this, who likewise have been discouraged. What was the latest I saw? Oh, now the, the damage control. When, there, when, when there's not, you know, uh, the main networks won't talk about it, right? They're just downplaying it. Oh, yeah, we're just going to just hunker down. ABC's waiting for it all to blow over, batten down the hatches. So everybody will forget here soon enough. They may be right if they can, can just hold on long enough. But Prince Andrew of Britain actually released a statement the other day saying, well, you know, the only reason I flew uh, to Jeffrey Epstein's island was to to go end my friendship with him. Really? (laughs) You know, it's a crazy thing, but there's this thing called a telephone. It allows you to communicate over vast differences, or distances, rather. And, And, you know, you could even send an email if that was the case. If you were so disgusted... Why, I am so offended by what you are doing. I just learned for myself, and my goodness, I am ending my friendship. But I'm going to have to come to your island and maybe hang out with some 16-year-old girls just, you know, to to make sure that uh, you understand how serious I am about this. It just sounds like a, a likely story. So here's my point. Truth is getting tougher to come by, at least through official sources. That doesn't mean it's not out there. It just means that there are people who will do whatever they can to keep us from it, including forbidding us to speak it, forbidding us to acknowledge it. If there was ever a time for people to learn whether or not they have that sense of defiance, this is it. It's time to find your voice and it's time to speak the truth, even if your voice is shaking. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. How are you doing today? I am excellent. How are you? You know, your words that you are speaking right now could not be so true. You know, it's, it's so right in front of your face right now, what's going on, and people are just, as long as it's not affecting me, they're just still stuck in that mindset that, I'm going to be okay. I mean, you're looking at those people in Hong Kong right now. Those kids, it's turning pretty nasty over there. People are being shot by the police. And uh, 
they're still going because they know what exactly what you said about China it will be their fate. And they're not going to, I mean, they're not giving up. And you're seeing it here in the United States. This, I mean, I was on a show before, they were talking about taxation. And these people just don't understand how to manage their own checkbooks. Like we have to do at home. They're just, cutting spending isn't even an option or a thought in their minds. It's how do we raise more taxes? How do we raise more taxes? And how do we convince you that this is what you really want us to do? Yeah, it's ludicrous. We are living in insanity right now. A penny here, a penny there, a penny times how many million people, 10 cents a gallon of gas, more. Where's all the money going? It's going into the retirement and pension plans and health care for these, these government employees. It's a Ponzi scheme. The cost is getting so expensive to keep up on that stuff that they don't know where to turn. Well, and what they're not claiming for their... Uh for their own, you know, feathering of their nests, they're using to build the apparatus to continue to control us and fleece us evermore. Yeah, they're not going to... I'll tell you what, Utah, I've lived here for 30 years. I never thought I'd see Utah turn the way it is right now. And I got news for you. It's what I left 30 years ago (laughs) from where I moved from. Well, I've got good news for you. John Huntsman Jr. is going to ride to our rescue, just like Mitt Romney did. He's announced he's going to run for governor. (laughs) Yeah, that's not. He's not getting my vote. He won't get my vote. No. Anyway, keep up the good work, man. I wish more people would wake up. Well, that's what we're doing. Hopefully, waking them up one at a time. Thank you so much for weighing in. Look, not everybody is going to agree with this. In fact, some people, um, you know, I use the term Stockholm syndrome, and some people think, well, that's really a derogatory thing. That's that's for people who are being held hostage. But I can't think of a better way to describe the mindset that comes into play when people look for any reason, they're grasping for any straw to maintain their belief in the system that is trying its best to to separate them from their God-given rights. And one of the ways that they're being very successful, they being the people who want control, is through controlling what we think. You see it in the way the media covers things. You see it in the words we're not allowed to use. And it's not just government, okay? It's, it's found in the business culture. It's found in academia. The media obviously has this. The news is tightening. Some of us have sensed this for a while, and that's why we're starting to make some pretty excited noises like, hey, folks, this isn't getting better. But if you have a commitment to the truth, you have better dig deep because you're going to need courage to speak it here before long. Going back to John Miltimore's article, he says the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution largely protects Americans from the creepy authoritarian systems found in 1984 East Germany and China. But he says the rise of cancel culture shows the pressure to conform to all sorts of orthodoxies, smelly or not, remains strong. The new thought police may be less sinister than the th- less sinister than the think poll in 1984, but the next generation will have to decide if seeking conformity of thought or language through public shaming is either healthy or suffocating. Fees Dan Sanchez recently recently observed that many people today feel like they're walking on eggshells and live in fear of making a verbal mistake that could draw condemnation. And that's a lot of pressure for people still learning to the the acceptable boundaries of a new moral code that's constantly evolving. Most people, if the pressure is sufficient, eventually will say two plus two equals five just to escape punishment, just like Winston Smith does at the end of 1984. 
Now, Orwell did say being in a minority, even a minority of one, did not make you mad. There was truth and there was untruth. And if you clung to the truth, even against the whole world, you were not mad. In other words, the world may be mad, but you don't have to be. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. So we've been spending some time talking about truth and even unpopular truths. I've got one to drop on you real quick here. Of course, there was a school shooting yesterday in California. I know they should have made it more illegal or illegaler, as my friend put it, <laughs> to, to, uh, for a 16-year-old to have a gun in school and to, to shoot his fellow students. Uh, yes, that, uh, that should be much more illegaler than it already is, to coin a phrase. Did you realize that of the 27 deadliest mass shooters, 26 of them were fatherless? I know there's talk about, well, you know, they're also on, you know, these uh, mood elevator drugs or or anyways, they're, they're, many of them are on um, different types of uh, drugs to regulate their moods. But that really blew me away. 26 out of 27 of the deadliest mass shooters were fatherless. And I know correlation doesn't equal causation, but you would think that uh, maybe somebody would tear themselves away from the Therefore, we must ban guns long enough to explore. Do broken homes contribute to the kind of instability that could lead someone to, to go on a murderous rampage? I know not everybody does, but that's a pretty, pretty large percentage. All right, let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Hello? Hello there. Oh, it's me. Okay, how are you? Ryan. Excellent. What you thinking, Ray? Hello? Did I lose you? No, you're, you're there. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, it's go, it's, I'm down in New Mexico, so it seems like it's going in and out. So, so what I was going to say is people don't understand these natural laws. You know, for instance, a natural law is you cannot produce trust unless you're, you're, you're full of trustworthiness. Okay, you, you know, it's through being trustworthy that you produce a reputation, you know, of being a person that you can trust. Well, see, these politicians, they through news, they've been, you know getting everybody to kick back on their heels and not pay attention. And I guess it's generation after generation, politicians are trying to get their kids to go into politics because they know they can just keep fleecing us and fleecing us. Yep, that's how you create a dynasty. A dynasty. And it's, you know, you just nickel and dime us to death, you know, until pretty soon there's no more middle class. You know, and, and you do it to everybody. The companies go away, the people go away, you know, look at California. So, you know, we need to get the average people in the office to, to stop this, you know, but the trouble is with the media, every 
every um, average person has some little skeleton in their, in their closet, especially in their teens or something. If they did went wild one night or something like that, and so then they they would be, you know, they would be attacked like they're attacking President Trump. Well, and but you know, look, if, some of them get a pass. I mean, come on, Governor Ralph Northam in in Virginia, he gets a pass, and and, and others. But but you're right. There is no limit. They'll go back as far as they have to to find. Well, did you do this when you were a teenager? Well, and you're forever disqualified from ever having any kind of leadership. Yeah. So so they they understand. That, you know, they want to destroy the trust of everybody, especially the ones that will start cutting taxes and give the money back to the people. You know, I'm. You know, and I mean, at what point does overtaxation become socialism? I mean, I think we're there already. We're we're overtaxed. You know, we're we're socialism. Oh, I would agree. You know, one of the scary things that uh, I I learned this a few years ago um, when when I I decided briefly I was going to run for mayor of the city that I was living in, and I did this at, at the request of a friend who just said, "Look, we." There's there's really nobody running and we just need somebody who's who's freedom minded. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to run for politics, but OK, I'll, I'll do it. And we sat down and kind of had a little uh, strategy talk about, OK, this is how you have to do it. And it was perfectly clear that you cannot run for office. And I'm talking right down to a small town mayor level up to Congress or any other office above that. You can't run as an honest individual. You have to be willing to morph and tell this voting block what they want to hear and then tell this voting block what they want to hear. And then I read an article by James Altucher, which he was considering a run for Congress. Now, I believe he was from New York State. And he said the first thing that he was asked when he was approached by people who said, "Okay, well, we want to see if you're really serious about this. They said, show us on paper. How are you going to come up with the money? And he had to spell out for him, well, this is where I'm going to get the campaign donations. And like, OK, well, all right, that might work out. But we do have some other concerns. And the bottom line was this. You cannot be who you are and expect to gain public office. And in some ways, I think that's a good thing because that keeps truly honest people, you know, uh, away from being power seekers. At the same time, it enables uh, the, the really true opportunists out there to jump on board. And, ah, well, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, to, to seek this office because, you know, they, you need me to make these decisions. And I guess my message is just simply this. We don't need to outsource all of our problem solving to politicians. And I honestly wish that people would take the, the advice. My, my friend uh, Farley Anderson had, I thought, a very uh, workable solution. He suggested, he says, I think we ought, to, we ought to draft people. Now, he's talking in the sense that it's not like involuntary, you know, um, uh, con- conscription. But basically, your neighbors show up on your doorstep and they say, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith. Sorry, I'm going to be equal opportunity. Mrs. Smith. As your neighbors, we have come to trust you because of the character that we have observed in how you live your life, how you've raised your kids, the way you conduct yourself. We would like you to represent us. We will do all the campaigning. We will do all the fundraising. All we ask is that you represent us, whether it's at the state legislature or as mayor or city council, whatever it may be, for one term. And the person can say no. But at least can you see the difference in how people might approach political leadership if that was the dynamic? They reluctantly 
decide, okay, well, I can set aside my own interest, and it's going to be kind of a hardship to do this, but I will do this for the short term in the hopes that uh, this will benefit my friends and neighbors who have come to me because they trust me to do the right thing, and not because I'm seeking power, not because I believe that, yes, I have all the answers. And after I have served that one term and served with, you know, integrity and served with purpose, I step down and they go find somebody else. To me, that just seems like a much more representative way to have people in office to carry out the the functions of good government that aren't just there for, you know, the the purpose of building a career or or trying to build some personal fiefdom for themselves, you know, over over a a never ending career, which then they want to pass on to their kids. And again, this can extend down to even the small town level. By the way, there's an article I'm going to include in the show notes today. I won't have time to get to it, but How Americans Select Their Dictators. It's by Annie Holmquist, and it's published on intellectualtakeout.org. And she asks the question, when it comes to selecting a candidate for president, how do you choose? She says the answer seems like a no-brainer to some. Well, you choose the person whose ideology most closely aligns with your own. But if a recent article from the Wall Street Journal is any indication, that's not the way many Americans operate. Instead, they choose their candidate based on charisma, electability, and relatability. This is one of the reasons why the Democrats are having so much heartburn trying to figure, how can we beat Trump? I want you to read the article for yourself. She has a great quote here from Alexis de Tocqueville. Every man allows himself to be put in leading strings because he sees that it is not a person or class of persons, but the people at large that holds the end of his chain. By this system, the people shake off their state of dependence just long enough to select their master and then relapse into it again. Well, these chains are much more comfortable than the chains we had last time around. Why wouldn't somebody be concerned? Why are we wearing chains at all? Again, as Tocqueville put it, they console themselves for being in tutelage by the reflection that they have chosen their own guardians or their own dictators. This is one of the reasons why I'm so adamant that uh, our solutions, whatever they may be, cannot entirely be found in politics. To the best of our ability, we should make politicians and political solutions as obsolete as possible. There are some legitimate areas where good government can be a huge blessing in our lives. But unfortunately, we've kind of been trained to think of it as, no, no, it's the catch-all. It will fix everything. If I skin my knee and sit on the curb and cry, someone will bring me cookies and milk and sing songs to me until I feel better. We've got to change something up. Check out the article. It'll be in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us. Stick around. Kate Daly is up next on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 